Today on TechNATO, we're going to break down the iPhone announcement. We're also going to celebrate Cobol's 60th birthday and talk with Robert Ronsoval of Trapezoid about firmware security. That's all coming up on TechNATO, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNATO. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, joined, as always, by Don Pizzette. How you doing? Doing swell. And Justin Dennison. Justin, how are you? I'm doing well as well. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Good to have you guys Good here. Times. It, Good it feels like we're, we're finally back to normal, because we were back to normal last week, but it was just Don and I still, so now got the old well, that's uh, not normal. back together. Back well, to the old normal. It was, it was, yeah. The, the, <laughs> makes the, the most podcast great again. Uh, I'll tell you had, what, right? you if that doesn't sell this upcoming episode. One of us is going to like, be bleeding in a moment if we're going to keep this going. <laughs> Remember when Justin wasn't here? <laughs> <laughs> it's a simpler time. A simpler time. Uh, hey, we've got a lot of good stuff today. We have a uh, ton of news. We've got updates on the uh, the Apple announcement. We've got Robert Ronsoval, who is the uh, co founder and president of Trapezoid. We'll be talking to him in a little bit uh, about the topic that everyone wants to talk about firmware. Exciting stuff, but it is actually exciting in this case. So we'll talk to Robert in a little bit. But first, let's get to the news from this week. The big story is the uh, the release of the new iPhone. But uh, our article is a, a little more uh, <laughs> focused than that. Uh, so this one over at CNN.com: New iPhones tripophobic, tripophobic, tripophobic. Sure. Yeah. Tripophobic design. Yes. Distribute. Uh, distri- God, I'm going to start this whole headline over. Hello and welcome to Techno. <laughs> New iPhones. Tripophobic design disturbs people with a fear of holes, and and who doesn't have that? But um, that is because of the the back of the uh, the phone. It looks like where the uh, you've got the the two cameras uh, or the three cameras, I guess, on the Pro model. It looks like, and those uh, look like holes. Yes. <laughs> but, they're, but they're not whole. I'll tell you what, you have summed it up. Next article. So, you know, I, I love articles that are bizarre like these that make almost no sense whatsoever. And usually it's from somebody like the Register and you just expect it. But this is from CNN yeah. where they have journalistic integrity and excellence. And so, anyhow, point is, a lot of people were talking about how the new iPhone was going to come out and it was going to have this obscene camera bump on the back that was just this you know, huge wart stuck on it. Uh, it does. And if you go with the Pro version, it has three cameras on the back, which some people care about. Um, they say it looks like a fidget spinner. It does kind of look like mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. They should have made it a fidget spinner. That would be cool. You know, if they really focused on being the best they could be. Yeah. But anyhow. Steve Jobs would have made it a fidget so that's, spinner. So <laughs> he probably would have. But that's what they did. And so it's got all these cameras on it. Uh, there are three different focal lengths. Very exciting if you care about stuff like that. Uh, but it turns out that some people actually have a phobia. And I guess... People have phobias of all sorts of things, uh, but in this case, they have phobias, and it gets set off if you have a fear of holes. Looking at the back of this phone, I mean, that looks you... like two sets of eyes staring at me. Well, I'll say if I because uh, I thought, well, hey, I've got I've got the iPhone 10, and it's got you know two cameras on the back, mm-hmm. and it's got the little light, but it's almost got a, a tint over over the area where and you know we're not going to be able to really see that on here but you you don't really see two separate circles yeah. uh, on this on on the new phone it has a contrast with the the background of the phone so if you can if you pick the white if you pick the silver there's a lot of different color options um that are out this this time around uh it does look like you know three individual holes in there and and boy if if you've got that phobia and you're at the the keynote 
I mean, those are huge on stage <laughs> there. Like, Maybe that's how they discovered it. Like, 15 people just fainted that moment <laughs> in the announcement. Vomiting throughout <laughs> <in> Cupertino. <laughs> but no, so, um, yeah, maybe it's not the phone for you in that case. Or, or it is because it would always be facing away from you if you had the, yeah. so well, to keep the holes. All I know is this time next year, Samsung's will be out with four cameras. <laughs> oh my and, and if you're unaw- unsure whether you have that phobia or not, just look up the Lotus Blossom like seed pod. It... Yeah. it that's the one Even if you don't you. have it, it, it still kind of freaks yeah. me out. Yeah, if you search Lotus Blossom uh, seed I, pod, you, you should be fine with that this. one. I've seen this. Lotus Blossom. While you're saying that, though, I've seen some some images where people have taken the phone and put the put the three uh, camera things on the back, then five, then ten, and then just a picture of a, a bubble tea. And it looks the same with all the little <laughs> black dots at the bottom of the bubble tea. Okay, so, so this, you got, I've got the picture on my laptop. It. This triggers people? Yeah, it, yeah. It said, they said they showed, I, uh, I, I looked this up, and they said 16% of people um, find that image like disturbing, huh? Which I mean, it's not a pretty thing. I think it's a visceral reaction because it kind of looks like a, like an insect den, mm, like yeah, maybe it, like a beehive or something. Yeah, like right. the things that I'm like hitting off the top of my porch yeah. every weekend. Uh, yeah, but it is a weird looking thing. By the way, if you have that and you're watching Tech Native, we're we're sorry. Because yeah, uh, you just had a very there. visceral response. Yeah. Look away. We're not genuinely sorry. Yeah, but we are yeah. sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, it's a, it's a real, it's a real phobia. So let's uh, let's move to some hard tech news. Let's do that. All right, uh, let's head over to Ars Technica now. Uh, to be in ten, uh, playing catch up with the rest of the Linux world, and that's a good thing. Um, and why are we showing Toy Story there? Oh. Because Buster is Buster the name, the code name. Yeah, so uh, Debian code names are always based off of Toy Story characters. Oh, was that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's their thing. I don't know why they do that, but they do. Uh, and so this one is Buster Debian ten. Uh, Debian nine is is still supported right now. Ten is just coming out, which is exciting. Uh, and for many people, many people interact with Debian on a regular basis because Canonical bases Ubuntu Linux off of Debian, uh, but they base it off of the testing branch of Debian, so it usually has some of the latest and greatest stuff in it. They do a great job with that. Debian, on the other hand, their stable branch that gets released is significantly more behind than uh, than like Ubuntu. The benefit is it's far more stable, right? The, the negative is that there's older stuff on there. So sometimes you want to install an application, and it depends on some library, and you don't have the latest version of that library, which is a real problem when it's something like the CLIB, and you can't, like, you're not allowed to update that or you break everything. So uh, you're kind of dependent on the operating system actually updating it. So Buster is coming out, and uh, actually, I think it is actually released at this point. So you can jump in and get the latest updates, and for at least six or seven months, you'll feel like you're the latest and greatest top of the world, but then in about 10 months, you'll start encountering libraries again that aren't the latest and greatest. So there'll still be a big push for people to run distros like Ubuntu, Fedora that have the latest and greatest. But Debian and RHEL, for example, where they're a little bit behind, are far more stable. So Debian's updates, uh, it does include a couple of, of things. You know, the, the standard kernel update that you expect to see, that that's pretty normal. Uh, there's some visual stuff like dark mode that nobody really cares about except the media. Uh, which I guess were the media, so I guess that makes me care about it. Oh. Uh, but the biggest thing, in my opinion, that they're rolling out is the ability to support Secure Boot. Uh, so Debian, because they're a little bit behind, haven't had the signed bootloader files to be able to use Secure Boot, so you always had to put your system into like legacy mode or disable Secure Boot for it. Uh, you will not have to do that with Debian 10, so if you have UEFI, laptop, desktop... Uh, or even virtual machines that are doing the virtual UFI, you will be able to do secure boot on them. Uh, and then if you are supporting Debian in a server environment, be aware, 
app armor is going to be turned on by default now. And that's true in Canonical uh, Ubuntu already. In Red Hat, you have SE Linux instead. But in Debian, you're now going to have App Armor by default. Those are, are probably the two big things to keep an eye out for. Uh, App Armor support has already been there. It's just turned on by default. That's the big difference. I I know we, we talked about uh, the code names for for Debian, but uh, they, there's an article linked here about the Ubuntu, and I, I love theirs. The, oh, there is the, the disco, disco dingo. dingo. Yeah. yeah, they they always do like the alliteration, right? With the yeah. an animal and, a, and an adjective of the same letter. Yeah, artsy aardvark or what is it? Oh, you're talking about the Ubuntu ones. Yeah, yeah they're, okay. they're code names. Yeah, I love that. By the way, if we're part of the press, do we get press passes? No. Oh, okay. We, can, we have in we're the past. The, right? uh, <laughs> we're not the mainstream media. Oh, we're the fringe. I, I would like to think we are. Yeah, no, we're, we're more like TMZ. Uh, I think that counts. Yeah, they get press passes. No, they're, they're famous, <laughs> and we're not. Well, people actively hate them. I don't. I don't think. I think people. Oh, wait, I, people if, have to know if, us. If, if hate <laughs> is what we're going for here, then I've been doing it wrong. They have <laughs> to get to know us. Attainable goals. I yeah, think we can attain that. Yep. We can do that. Just <laughs> if we get this out to enough people. Uh, all right. Our next article is over on ZDNet. Uh, COBOL turns sixty. Why it will outlive us all? In the beginning, there was machine languages and assembler. Neither was easy to use, but then came COBOL and everything changed. Do you remember where you were when? Yeah, I didn't exist. <laughs> How about you guys? No, me either. <laughs> so COBOL is one of those legacy programming languages that is used in many, many mainframes. In fact, there are still many IBM mainframes that are out there that run COBOL today, which is what this article is talking about over on ZDNet, that if you work in the enterprise space, especially in the financial industry, many of them use mainframes that were developed on a COBOL-based system. And here we are in 2019 where nobody in their right mind would deploy a new system using COBOL. There's all sorts of new programming languages, but because it was used in such critical infrastructures, mission-critical systems, it's still around. It's still out there, and COBOL developers actually demand a pretty penny on the job market that's out there. So it's one of the few places where you don't have uh, age discrimination and things that if anybody knows COBOL, there's opportunities out there for it. Uh, and it's not going anywhere anytime soon because so many of these these sectors are still using it and there's systems they just can't mess with. Uh, they, they list it in the article somewhere, some of the different places that it's in use. But for example, if you are dealing with a lot of ATMs, they're usually just front ends for a mainframe that is using COBOL. Uh, if you're on public transit, a lot of them are using control systems that are relying on COBOL and so on. Eventually, COBOL will die. It's just not going to happen anytime soon. Not to be confused with COBOLT, the design... Uh, yeah, different. Cool. Different cobalt. Oh, I thought you were going cobalt the element. They actually say or in that. here. Don't confuse it with that either. Yeah. Here we go. Common business oriented language is what it stands for. Yeah, there's, there's been language. updates to cobalt. They've added, uh, I saw a cobalt release that had object oriented added to it, which hmm. is odd. I don't know cobalt. Uh, I do know that the new AWS Lambda runtimes do support cobalt as really? a runtime. So you, they're like, you can move your cobalt applications to serverless. And I was like, huh. Huh. They could make a ton of money doing that, which yeah. I'm sure is why they did it. <laughs> huh. Good idea. So, yeah, it's not going anywhere. Let's, let's develop stuff for companies that have billions of dollars. Yeah. There we go. Exactly. It business. seems like a sound business model. Yeah. Out well, of the underpants gnomes, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, we figured out step two. <laughs> Cobol. Uh, yeah, co co yeah, steel underwear. Cobol. Profit. Profits. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> let's head over to Naked Security by Sophos uh, for our next article. Mozilla increases browser privacy with encrypted DNS. So uh, 
we've we've talked about stuff recently where the the little thing with the uh, you know, with the company names going away, mm-hmm. where is that? Is this related to that? Nope, this is different. Yep. Okay. So Mozilla is all over the place, and let, let's just take a quick poll here, real quick. Do either of you guys use Firefox? Ish. Do I? I? I do it just because of some of the stuff I do. I test in Firefox. Okay. Um, yeah. I do have it installed. So at one point, I made the decision to put this on this machine. But you don't use it as your to. regular browser. No, I, I'm a Chrome guy. So if we were filling this podcast five years ago, would either of you say yes? Probably, yeah. Now, I, uh, I will say there was a recent time where I, like Chrome was doing some kind of crazy stuff, and, well, we all know the memory hog that it is. Uh, it was really hard for me to track those. Mm-hmm. Mozilla's, uh, the Firefox process was all collective. So I did I did use Firefox recently for a while. Yeah. I mean, for, for a good period of time, tools like GreaseMonkey that, you know, let you write all sorts of scripts and interact with web pages and their support of the developer community and stuff made Firefox the browser to go to. And then they just, like, lost their vision, and they started getting bloated, and they dropped support for some of these key things that people really loved, and people got to where they hated Firefox. So their market share started to drop. Chrome became the dominant browser, and we end up in a a world today where not a lot of people run Firefox. So they're trying to find themselves, and one way they're doing that is by latching onto privacy. They're saying, look, we don't have a massive search engine behind the scenes that we have to feed data to, so let's focus on privacy since we don't care about the data anyway, and maybe people will flock to that. So uh, so they have done things to make sure that your, your identity is more protected while you browse the web. But one thing your web browser does on a consistent basis is DNS lookups. Every time you type in a domain name into your URL field, it's got to go out and resolve that to an IP. And it usually relies on the operating system to do that, most operating systems do DNS lookups unencrypted, right? DNS has never been considered a secure uh, resource. Well, the problem with unencrypted DNS lookups is anybody watching the network can see what websites you're going to. And, you know, they can intercept at least the domain names, maybe not the full URL, but at least the domain name to figure out where you're going. Uh, and so it creates a history. And if you're in a uh, in an area where you have like an oppressive regime running the government or in a workplace where they won't let you go to ESPN or somewhere like that, you know, they'll be able to see where you're going and that's a problem. So Mozilla is now adding in support to do their own lookups against a different DNS server than what your operating system is relying upon and to do it encrypted with TLS. So it is a secure connection and people won't be able to see, you know, what your DNS uh, message body actually is, and that'll be supported by the browser. So it's a neat feature. For most people, it's not going to make any real difference. Uh, there are some attacks that are out there, like man-in-the-middle attacks, where people reply to a DNS request prior to a uh, an actual DNS server being able to reply uh, that this mitigates. But uh, but it's mainly so that people monitoring the network can't tell what websites you're going to. All right, I might start using Firefox again. Yeah. Now, are, are you watching what websites well, I go to? I would make the argument that this hides the DNS lookup, but you're still going to connect to the server to get the web page, mm-hmm. and we can figure out what server that was. Uh, so th- it's not a perfect thing, but it's a little step, and Mozilla's playing it up big to try and draw people back over. This and all the other stuff kind of makes it a little bit more, I don't know, practical. I mean, if you really want to hide what you're doing, you use the Tor browser. Yeah, yeah that, I'm going back which to Which is Netscape. based on Firefox, right? Uh, it is, yeah, an older version of Firefox, yeah. Yeah, before they started screwing with all the scripts. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah going back to Netscape Navigator. Uh, which is technically Mozilla. Dang it. Yeah. yeah. No, right. Mozilla okay. version. Use, your, from use your AOL browser. Moving to SeaMonkey. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, our next article is over on ZDNet. Uh, we like ZDNet recently. Uh, Metasploit team releases BlueKeep exploit. Metasploit BlueKeep module can achieve code execution... And it's easy to use. Um, yeah, we've been talking about uh, we talked 
do we have a pod or a webinar about Bluekeep? No. We have one that's in the works right now. Right. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about that. So we're waiting for this, right? What's been holding it up is everybody knows about Bluekeep and there's CVEs that are posted around this exploit in Microsoft's remote desktop protocol and Microsoft has a patch out and you need to update. But up until now, nobody has released proof of concept code or a, a way to actually weaponize this this vulnerability and, and turn it into a full-blown exploit. And suddenly, out of the blue, a couple of days ago, the uh, Metasploit team released a Metasploit module that you can load in where it actually uses the Bluekeep vulnerability to penetrate a machine. So it is uh, an actual like full-blown proof of concept. Now, what this means is two things. So one... If you're a pen tester or a cybersecurity analyst or whatever, you can now check your system and see if you can leverage Bluekeep against your own machine. So great for testing. But the other thing that it means is attackers now have a proof of concept and somebody who didn't know how to take advantage of the RDP exploits before now has at least one vector that they can make use of. Now, uh, in the ZDNet article, they actually do point out somewhere in here that it is not perfect. It's still a little bit buggy, and uh, simple typos will actually cause your system to blue screen and things like that, but it's the first step in the full release of what that uh, what that Bluekeep vulnerability looks like. And there's actually a few variations of Bluekeep that are coming down the line as well. That's not a part of this. So it's really just the, the very first release of any kind of exploit-worthy code. Uh, and this is one of those things that I do want to highlight. I was, I was talking to Daniel about this. It's currently as an open pull request on GitHub, so it's not fully merged into Metasploit yet. Uh, it is under active development. You can pull it down, go look at it, use it, but things are changing. Like, I'm pretty sure the last, yeah, 19 hours ago, last comment on the pull request, mm -hmm. to, and there's like a checklist of things that need to happen. So just and keep that in mind that it may change. And the comment is, uh, you know, I make... $250 a day working from home. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to buy this vitamin? Yes. Of course. Boom. Vitamins are good, right? Uh, yep. Sorry. Delicious. <laughs> All right. Uh, next, let's head over to the BBC, uh, bbc.com. Netanyahu denies Politico report Israel spying on the White House. So um, this is uh, obviously... The further down story on the list here, um, because Politico originally uh, had a report that uh, they cited a few people within um, uh, within the United States who uh, who said that there there were efforts to spy on the White House, uh, presumably on the White House um, by Israel, based on the fact that uh, they found uh, some of these Stingray devices that we've talked about in the past uh, before. How uh, something that it's used, I guess, by the FBI and, and people like that um, to basically monitor. Um, mobile traffic, uh, device names, even intercept calls and and data that uh, that's being sent over those devices. Um, but there, a few were found around um, the White House, and uh, they don't say why specifically, but it was believed that these were um, put there by uh, the Israelis, according to the U.S. intelligence agencies. And of course, uh, Israel is uh, is adamantly denying that at this point. So, but of course they would, even you know, if they did. I can see this going a few different ways, right? Now, just because we're allies doesn't mean we don't keep an eye on people to trust but verify, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if we were spying on Israel. And so if Israel spying on us, that's just, I think that's just politics. Yeah. That's how it is. Keep your friends close, enemies close. But the other thing to remember is that Israel is a hotbed of cybersecurity companies, right? Mm -hmm. There are a number of people coming out of the Israeli Defense Force and then going into the private sector and creating penetration testing companies, security tools. If you've been to Black Hat or DEF CON, you've seen 
just the dearth of Israeli yeah. companies that are there. We've had a few on here. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was an Israeli company that manufactured the Stingray, but then sold it, and you know maybe it sold to a few different companies before ending up on a threat actor. That would be my guess. The uh, Do you remember the little PETA device that was meant to like capture keys just by sitting near a computer? Mm-hmm. It was like the size of a... Was that an Israeli? I think that was an out of an Israeli research. Maybe. Like a university, University of Tel Aviv or something like that. Oh, it, it was, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, crazy stuff. There have been several companies. I know we've certainly done interviews. And so when it when it comes to, uh, they call this attribution, right? Who do, When they see new ransomware, who do they attribute it to? And sometimes they get really lazy about it. And you'll see, like, North Korea issues new ransomware against Canada. And when you dig down, like, All right, how do they attribute it to North Korea? And it turns out that when you reverse engineer the code and you fire up a debugger, there's some hooks and they're written in Korean. Well, it couldn't have been South Korea, so it must have been North Korea, mm. and that's it, right? But I thought it was ASCII art of Kim Jong Un. Yeah. <laughs> across your screen. <laughs> but hey, there's people in the U.S. that speak Korean, write code in Korean, and, and could have just as well created that here. So that's not good attribution. So you have to have a real way to tie it back to a country. And here they give us zero information about how they're attributing this back. So it could be as simple as they identified it as a device manufactured by an Israeli company. That's not an indicator that it was the Israeli government. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was, and honestly, I wouldn't blame them, because countries spy on each other. It's what we do. Yeah, and, and uh, Netanyahu pointed out in his denial that Israel has a longstanding policy of not um, spying on, on, on the U.S., uh, but they did point out a couple of cases here, which I thought was interesting at the very bottom uh, of, of times that it's been proven that they have. Um, Rafi Itan, the Mossad agent who captured uh, the Nazi Adolf Eichmann in 1960, was actually the handler um, for Jonathan Pollard, a uh, U.S. analyst who gave thousands of top-secret documents to Israel uh, in the 80s. So, um, you know, that's one of the examples. I thought that one was kind of cool. So, Well, I mean, you could say that they weren't spying on us. It was one of us. Yeah, it was yeah, just And if you different. give it to me, what am I going to I'm do? just the messenger. Don't shoot me. If, if they've got a policy that says they're not going to spy on us, I mean, they've got a policy. It's written down. Yeah, it's written so, down. So uh, this, is, this is really not an issue. I assume this Mossad <laughs> agent was fired immediately. Oh, I'm sh- certain. Certain breaking the, policy. This, this Peter device I brought is wicked old, but, uh, well, compared to this, it, 2015, but it was Tel Aviv University, huh. and it was... Listening to radio uh, electromagnetic radiation and decrypting passwords by sitting next to it. You know, all right, this is a good segue into our next article, which is something kind of similar to that. Yeah, this is on your favorite site, uh, The Register. I know. um, With still the best uh, logo on the internet. Um, is that a vulture? It is. Okay. Oh, I thought they were, I was like, no, that's a cat. Because Justin. they're picking over the corpse of legitimate news. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, the net cat is out of the bag. Intel chipset exploited to sniff SSH passwords as they're typed over the network. Cunning data snooping side channel technique is thought or is tough to exploit. Chipzilla warns. So yeah, this is this is. Kind of exactly what you were talking about. So I got worried when I first saw this headline. I'm like, ah, oh, crap, i got to figure this out because I rely on SSH authentication for a ton of things. Uh, although it does say that it is SSH when you're typing passwords, not certificate-based SSH, which is the way you're supposed to do it. So if you're using certificate-based authentication, you are golden, you're fine. But if you're using a type password, they said they have found a way where they can actually figure out your password uh, by monitoring the communications across the system. Now... That's a that's a big red flag. That's a big warning, like, you know, danger. But when you start digging into it, uh, first off, they picked a great thumbnail for this article. It's a cat 
typing on a keyboard. So all hackers are cats. It, I it think that's how that works. Well, Toons is the driving Net-cat. cat. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. Toons? Oh yeah, yeah. he's great. That's yeah. what it reminded me of. But uh, but what they did is they said, all right, when somebody's typing in an SSH session, it's encrypted, so you can't see what it is, right? So that, that's a fact. <laughs> and then, but when they type, it gets encrypted and it gets sent. And so you see when the packets come in, right? So you know when somebody's typing. You just don't know what they're typing. And if you know when they're typing and you understand somebody's natural human movements of like how long the finger takes to move from the space bar to the T key or whatever, you can measure the time between packets and figure out what they're typing based on when those packets are being sent. Wow. All right. Now, that sounded pretty vague to me, and I was like, well, you know, the, the amount of time it takes somebody's finger to travel from one key to another is going to vary from person to person. So you have to have intimate knowledge of how this person behaves. And if you have intimate knowledge of how they behave, that means you could probably see them. In other words, you could just see their keyboard and see what they're typing. <laughs> or, so there's that. Or you have a set of good guesses anyway. Yeah, and the other thing is, is it going to know if I'm holding the shift key or not? Yeah. No. So. Yeah, because that's encoded in the key combination, isn't or, it? Or, I mean, they might see you press the shift key, but they would never see you let go of the shift key. Right. That's not something you send. Yeah. You, actually, you, you don't send holding the shift key either. Yeah. No, that, that's, it's a modifier to the key, right? Yeah. I think it, the, it's a modifier code. So I could be holding shift control function option and, and type You wouldn't know it, yeah. yeah. So those are all things that start to break down, but it is also completely defeated by certificate authentication or when you're using something like a YubiKey where it blasts the whole key in one swoop, you know, instead of the travel time. Uh, LastPass where it autofills in the password. A lot of the tools that we use already mitigate this. So while it was a great headline and an awesome thumbnail, it's uh, what I would categorize as total BS. Cat- categorize? Categorize. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I did that on purpose. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. I definitely thought we were talking about the net netcat, the the tool, right? The yeah. the Linux tool. It well, is not that, is it? No. Um, although you could actually find a way to leverage netcat in this. Oh yeah. Uh, but but not a part of it. Um, is the just, difference the capital C A T? Yes. Okay. So, well, that's not going to be confusing for Google searches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyhow, it, it, somebody wanted to get a, a proof of concept out and just show that they were able to do this and get their name out, and uh, the register reported on it. But it's not something anybody needs to worry about, especially if you're using certificate authentication. And this is totally a non-issue. Uh, if you're still using password authentication, though, be aware that technologies like these will become more and more accurate over time, especially if you're somebody like like us, where we're on camera a lot. People do see us type and could potentially learn our habits, but the amount of effort involved is so significant that uh, you'd really need to be specifically targeted for this. But, Don, I can't tape my SSH keys to the bottom of my computer. No, no, you can't. Yep. But uh-huh. you know what? you got a touch bar, so I'm sure that saves you somehow from this. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I wish that thing would go away. <laughs> I, I, I wish it would go. That's not in the new iPhone 11, is it? Oh, yeah, it's two of them. Uh, it's yeah. just touch bars on each side. <laughs> yeah. It's the screen is replaced by eleven touch bars. <laughs> <laughs> we have four pixels. But moving forward, I'm only going to type my password with my left hand, non-dominant. But and then they can slow it down. They'll learn yeah. that that's then you're the going to get like it. a weird fail to ban, or it's, you're going to have to call your bank and answer seven questions you don't know the answers to. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, all right, our next uh, article is over on scmagazine.com. Uh, Secret Service probing breach at federal IT contractor. Uh, Don. What's going on over there? Sorry. 
<laughs> it's a totally inappropriate joke in my head. I can't oh. say it on the podcast. I'll save it for later. <laughs> Write it down. This is a very different type of podcast. I'm trying to read this headline going, what we do I say? <laughs> I'm an infectious laugher, and I just see Don no. trying to hold no. it together. And I'm like, oh, no, Justin, you got to hold it together. No, I got it now. All right, so anyhow, um, right. Secret Service, they did some stuff, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they're they probing a breach. Uh, it's not the word probe, right? At the federal IT no, contractor. No, no. at, at a federal IT contractor. <clears throat> That's where they always seem to get us, too. It's not... Uh, you know, it's it's our contractors. It's the people that we hire are the ones that uh, that well, people go through. It, it's really hard to enforce like all your policies and procedures whenever you have a multitude of of different. I mean, I used to work for a federal contractor, and they were like, "You need to do these things." Eh, did we do them quite like someone at the NSA or the we were working for NOAA? NOAA did them? Eh, probably not. You know, time and time again, companies, they do everything they can to secure their network and, and protect their customer data as best as possible. But the reality is, you know, the hackers have more time, more flexibility, more tools. They can get in different ways. There's various weaknesses that can pop up. And in this scenario, you know, you've got basically the Secret Service, uh, you know, the U.S. government, where they have tons and tons of resources, taxpayer dollars. And even if they run out of money, they just raise the debt ceiling and they have new magic money, right? Regular companies can't do that. Uh, even with all of those resources, they still suffer from things like having federal IT contractors leak out data. Uh, we've seen this with Booz Allen more than once, right? I mean, Edward Snowden was a, a Booz Allen contractor and he leaked tons of data out uh, while he was there. And that just kind of continues to happen over and over again. So this is just a, a, another... Another big kind of message out there to society that as a company, there's steps that you take to protect your data, but you have to understand all the places your data is stored and all the people have access to it to make sure that you're taking the steps to protect it and make sure that that other people are taking steps to protect it as well. Uh, really challenging with cloud security, right? Because uh, we keep hearing about S3 buckets that are left open. And, and, you know, I didn't grab the article, but Facebook just had another one where there was a... Uh, uh, a storage bucket of some sort, I don't know if it was S3 or a different storage platform, that had the phone numbers for over 400 million people with public read access. Like it was an anybody. actual bucket. They had a bucket out back. Yeah, yeah, it's out by the dumpster next to the <laughs> AC. I can find that article yeah. real quick. Yeah. Somebody um, grab the phone number bucket. Uh, we need we need. And this is, this, this is one of those things where sometimes it's either lazy, carelessness, or i got to get done, uh, kind of a pressure thing. I, I need to access... Because of X, Y, or Z, I'm building a report, I'm building an application. I'll just make it public. It's read-only. No one will ever find it. That's a giant storage, right? S3 buckets sometimes have giant names. I know one will But there's tools that will actually start crawling and looking for those. So yeah. uh, luckily, AWS is, has started defaulting to, you got to go through several steps to make them public now. But that wasn't the case uh, probably even a year ago. I'm, I'm skimming this article as fast as I can. It was 419 million records, uh, 18 million in the UK, over 50 million in Vietnam, uh, over 133 million in the US. This is so, a Facebook. Uh, it did not Facebook, have a yeah. password. And it was a database uh, September that, oops, 4th, it that, like. was, uh, that was leaked out. And uh, it just says for more than a year, it sat there exposed to the internet where anybody could query against it to pull users' phone numbers. Um, so... There you go. You know, it's just th this kind of stuff happens. And if uh, if we're not 
staying on top of this data, you know, the, the attackers aren't going to give you a heads up. Not most of the time. They're going to say, oh, hey, by the way, did you know this was exposed? It's just going to sit but there. Would monitoring, I mean, I, I'm, I'm familiar with some monitoring technologies like this. Number one, in the art, in that article, just skimming over your, your shoulder, mm -hmm. it was exposed to the internet and it didn't have a password in order to query against it. That's bad. Yeah. But other than that, if I'm starting to pull 419 million phone number records, shouldn't I be like, yo, something something weird here. There's like query patterns or network transfer. But I guess you can be you know, kind of shady about that and just go yeah. pick the first 100 records. But there's there's tools that are designed for this, like uh, Burp Suite. You can use that to to proxy your connection to a web server and see like what what of my information is being passed in the HTML or or other JavaScript content. You know what, what can be direct read out of a cookie that we know is being secured via TLS while it's in transit, but when it's cached on your hard drive or if we accidentally flip over to the HTTP side of things, you know maybe it's a non secured element. You know what's being transferred, and that's exactly what they found here was they were able to query against this database and just turn up millions of numbers, and it has a phone number, has name, uh, and at least the country. It doesn't look like it has anything more, although there were fields for birthday, gender, hometown, location. Uh, a lot of those weren't filled out, at least not in the records that they showed. And that says object ID, so I immediately know something else about that database. Yeah, that ob object it's ID is probably tied to something. Uh, that one in particular, it looks like a Mongo database. So now I know a little bit about that behind the scenes. So maybe I start poking around some more. Yeah. Not, not good stuff. Good times. Mm -hmm. Knowing is a big portion of the battle. Yeah. Well, yep. you know, uh, one way a lot of data gets leaked out like this is by our own employees not uh, uh, just not taking the proper precautions. You know, things like phishing attempts and stuff are one way, but then just rushing out a product like a developer who's trying to rush something out and get it done says, oh, I'll, I'll come back and secure this later, and then they don't. So that's why it's so important that we audit, that we go back and we look and check. Uh, but uh, another way is if our hardware gets compromised, right, Peter? It is, and that can happen through firmware. I told you <laughs> we were going to talk about firmware, and uh, we do have Robert Ronsaval, uh co-founder and president of Trapezoid, coming up in just a moment. But let's take a quick break before we bring him in on the old Skype machine. Uh, so stay tuned. we got more coming up right after this with Robert Ronsaval on Technado. Enjoying Technado? Then be sure to check out Ignite, another podcast from the Pro TV Network. Ignite highlights stories of leadership as host Vicki Guy interviews a new business person each week. Learn more at itpro.tv slash podcasts. Hello and welcome back to TechNATO. And we're joined now for our interview by Robert Ronsvall, who's the co-founder and president of Trapezoid Inc. How you doing, Robert? I'm doing great. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, let's get started first with, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background on what Trapezoid is all about? Sure. Sure. Trapezoid is a uh, cybersecurity company, and we look at firmware. So we do continuous monitoring of uh, firmware from servers, clients, network storage devices, and uh, we help to, uh, we're looking for bad things. We give some visibility that previously was uh, inaccessible, we felt, and uh, that's what we've been working on for the last, gosh, the last several years now. So um, you're, you're the co-founder, like I said. What, um, what need is it that you saw in the market that said, hey, we, we've got to create something here because this, this is just not being served? Right. You know, when we, first started, when we first got off the ground, the company was founded in 2011. And really, 
I'd come out of an incident response background working on a lot of federal projects. And we were planning on using commercial off-the-shelf tools to do security monitoring for service providers. And there was, there was this gap. And at the firmware layer, what got me thinking about firmware security in general was that I was taking some federal customers through one of our big data centers and we were doing a lot of managed security services and we were doing some really unique things. We were doing a memory forensics and full packet capture for our uh, cloud infrastructure customers and this is, this is 10 years ago now. And they said, you know, Robert, this is all really great, but what happens if you buy equipment and it comes and it lands at your facility and it's already compromised? And I just had, you know, it didn't have any good answer for that. So back then, the only thing you could do were uh, two things. One is buy equipment that is manufactured somewhere, hopefully more friendly to our federal customers. And two, uh, anything that landed on our docks, we would... Uh, flash the firmware uh, of every system from the known good from the OEM. So uh, our first cloud platform was HP, so we download, check all the checksums for everything, and flash everything we could on the platform from BIOS to RAID card to network uh, as part of the provisioning process. And then uh, uh, that's really all we could do. And eventually, uh, when we were getting off the ground, we saw an opportunity to um, develop something. And really, we just wanted visibility into the firmware. You know, uh, you have visibility at the network layer with packet capture, with memory and memory forensics tools. But there was really nothing like a net witness or anything like that, one of those, or a Wireshark for firmware. And that's kind of where, that's kind of, uh, what we were trying to do at the start. No, I'm, I'm curious because, uh, you know, for years people have talked about some of the different types of, of hardware attacks that are out there, and I, I'm trying to remember when, it, probably as, as many as 15 or even 20 years ago, I had read about where people were creating malicious uh, firmware images that you could flash onto the BIOS of a motherboard, and then, you know, the, the super danger there was no matter what you did to the operating system, you could replace the hard drive, and the machine is still compromised. So there was this risk. But in all these years, I've never actually encountered it myself, and not, not out in the field. I, I've never encountered a machine where that hardware is compromised. Now, I, I didn't work for a super secret agency or somebody you know, that was a, a great target, so maybe that's a part of it. But uh, do you find that this is actually a, a very common attack vector, or is it just more important to guarantee that attack vector is not there? Like, which, which kind of angle does that go? Well, no, and you, you raise a great point. As we were getting off the ground, people said, well, this is just... You know, I'm I'm not a government agency. I'm not a target, so I don't have to worry about this. But uh, attacks are starting to become uh, more mainstream, and you're you're seeing them out there in the wild. Um, you know, kind of the first in the I, I kind of classify firmware issues in uh, three areas. One is uh, stuff you find in the wild. Um, another one is the um, kind of the uh, government disclosure. So there was, you know, disclosure of NSA documents that had firmware capabilities. And then the third area is the is in the research community. You know, there's been a lot of great talks at Black Hat, DEF CON, and a lot of really good research around firmware. So we kind of classify the things in those three buckets. Um, 
the for a quick timeline, the earliest things people people kind of are familiar with is the Chernobyl virus back in '99 that uh, impacted BIOS, and you know they said it did like 200 million dollars in damage, and you had to reflash the BIOS or physically get in there and do something, and then moving forward. Uh, I guess in 2010, there were some Dell system boards that were shipped that ha actually had malicious code uh, on the replacement system board. So they didn't come directly from Dell. They came from uh, one of their partner suppliers uh, for a replacement system board for some of their PowerEdge servers. And then I guess most recently in the wild, there was just uh, the team over at uh, ESET has found some UEFI rootkits uh, in the wild and so you're starting to see it uh, in networking equipment, uh, some cameras and things like that. Um, but the capabilities are getting there just because there's so much more code on the on the boards nowadays. Now, you mentioned capabilities. So let let's say that I'm I'm a malicious actor and I want to I, you know I, I want to basically compromise the system. So I have access to write that firmware. What what are some of the things that I would try and do? Like is this key logging? Is this leaking private keys? What What is it, or is it really anything? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we've kind of seen is, you know, when you think of firmware, a lot of, a lot of the attacks have kind of been a uh, persistence mechanism or just a point of entry, you know, so uh, you might not see this, oh, well, there's this great uh, remote access Trojan with all these capabilities, but you'll see some type of exploit or compromise that you know, might allow a foothold or some persistence uh, in the case that hard drives get swapped out or formatted or things like that. So sitting here, we've been talking about servers and, and things of that nature. Has this kind of uptick in all these connected devices, IoT, has that made this more of a threat just because I have all these embedded devices with, oops, chips, good? Is that something that that you're aware of or is a big issue or you're just like, ah, we're good? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, the, no, that's a great question. The, uh, you know, a couple years ago, like I said, we talked to people and they they kind of would think it wasn't an issue. And with all the embedded devices where you're pretty much, all there is is firmware. Um, so you, you've, uh, you've seen that kind of raise awareness and uh, just get the word out a little more and bring it up as an issue. So. Um, yes, the embedded devices, there was just the story came out about the uh, Hikvision cameras recently, and um, there's been a number of things that where uh, attacks on firmware have been used to launch DDoS attacks, for example. Um, but it's not like a traditional persistence mechanism like you'd see on a server platform, but it's where there's this, this code running on some small device, and, and it has become, you know, it one of the reasons it's an issue is because when you uh, when you think of a server platform and the cost and the technology that's going in there, uh, they're doing more, the manufacturers and OEMs are putting more capabilities to gain some type of security artifacts in there because there's a higher cost. And in these small connected devices, there's so much pressure to keep, uh, to keep the cost down that, um, you know, do we add in some security capabilities uh, that be, a lot of times it can be a cost issue. Right, we're talking with Robert Bronsval of uh, Trapezoid, and, and Robert, I'm curious kind of where you guys fit in um, in, 
in, in the life cycle of a project? Like, do, do uh, government agencies or companies call you and say, hey, we've got all this equipment, we want you to check out the firmware here? Or do OEMs call you and say, hey, we've just created this new product, we want you to check out the firmware before we ship this out, or both? How's that happen? Yeah, so we work with uh, OEMs and customers in different ways, and kind of the conversations we've had with OEMs in the past is, is hey guys, uh, you have put out uh, documentation or data saying that you're doing something. Um, what kind of artifacts can you provide us to show that you're doing uh, some type of firmware, uh, firmware protection or secure boot or something? So uh, with, an, with an OEM, we will take into consideration, with an OEM, we will figure out what what they're providing, what they're doing in the space, and then we will um, a lot of times take those artifacts, whether it be uh, measured boot or whether it be some type of other artifacts, and typically we're looking for four things. We're looking for changes in the hardware. So if there's a new piece of hardware that's been put on that system, there's been physical access, um, that could be an indicator of compromise. We're looking at the software or firmware and what kind of forensic data can we get that that firmware is what it says it is. Then we're looking at the configuration. So um, a lot of times when you hear about these attacks in uh, the smaller devices, it's either a uh, misconfiguration or a hard-coded password that allows attackers to get in and do what they want. And then the final thing we look at are the operational metrics. So where we can gather things like uh, operating temperature on a consistent basis or or bandwidth or power consumption. Um, so we collect that type of data too to uh, look for changes that might need further investigation. And w one of the big news stories at the end of last year was the super micro systems where mm -hmm. uh, it, it was reported, uh, I guess we're, we're somewhat in unsure waters right now where nobody knows if the story was true or not, that uh, there were super micro server motherboards right. going out with an embedded chip on them that they, they weren't, or at least to my knowledge, they, they weren't modifying the firmware of the BIOS chip or UEFI or anything like that, but it was an actual completely separate uh, system on a chip, basically, that was stuck onto the system. Right. Uh, are you able to detect things like that? I, I guess maybe that would fall under the operational metrics? We're, we're a security company. Of course we can detect all of this. <laughs> no, um, it, no it, it's, a tough, it's a tough problem. So... Um, for the, for the physical implants, you know, I mentioned hardware, software, um, configuration, and metrics, but uh, there's really some, there's some interesting research going on right now. Um, actually, close to you guys at the University of Florida, they have a uh, hardware security research lab, and there's a couple of projects there around one uh, high, super high density imaging where they're uh, either x-raying or uh, looking at these uh, system boards, and then, uh, making it so that a user, they're taking those images, building a bill of materials, and then making it so that a user in the field can photograph it with an off-the-shelf camera and it can detect uh, modifications of hardware. So um, there's some interesting work going around on around the imaging side. Um, there's also some work going on around uh, the power detection. So uh, they're, they're also doing some work uh, running a current through the JTAG system on a board and developing a, uh, basically developing a signature that they can tell if something's been physically modified. So um, 
It's it's a it's a tough problem. Um, there's a lot of research going on right there. And I was just uh, yesterday, uh, NIST just had a kickoff for their supply chain security, um, yeah, their supply chain security project they're doing, uh, their first public kickoff. And there was a lot of discussion about um, not only the uh, the firmware and the artifacts, but also the physical tampering and how you can uh, how you can detect that. So um, I'd love to say uh, yes, we detect everything, but that you know it's just. Uh, it's a it's a tough problem. We're we're hoping to pull in some of those uh, some of those projects and some of that research. But um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, along the lines of the supermicro, I think uh, right after after that came out, there's been uh, some researchers that have actually done proof of concepts where they've they proved that you can in fact implant some uh, you know some system on a chip or other things to modify the. Um, to modify it so you can establish some uh, persistence mechanism. Now you mentioned like the the Dell replacement boards coming in, and you know with the super micro story, the idea there was that people were buying the boards and they were coming in already pre modded. Uh, so well, right. I say pre modded, it sounds like a hacked PlayStation or something, but I guess it's kind of <laughs> the same idea. Uh, it's so, got game sharks on them. <laughs> That's the problem. So, <laughs> they were trying uh, to use cheat codes. So you might you know be able to establish that a company is completely safe at the at the onset. You know you you come in your team, you you evaluate the hardware or the artifacts that they provide you with, and you you show everything certified. And clean but then that only lasts until the next piece of hardware changes the next time somebody gets access so do you do you do long-term engagements with organizations to make sure their hardware stays safe or is there some way you're able to continuously monitor that well uh, the platform we built it is a continuously continuous monitoring platform so it's it's checking on a on an ongoing basis for for those changes um it you know, the the whole supply chain thing is is really an interesting problem, and we're uh, we're looking at how we can engage with uh, different folks to, uh, you know, ideally you want um, when I talk about connecting with a device, we want as secure as possible, as out of band as possible, and as far up the supply chain as possible. So um, it really depends on the different OEMs and what they're doing, so uh, and what type of systems they're building and for who. So the, if they're building systems for the you know, classified use in the federal government, there might be a higher tolerance for uh, increased cost to add additional security checks up the supply chain and whatnot. All right, and so then, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I, I always love that game. Um, so uh, some of our, our listeners might recognize that you know we've, we've talked about firmware before recently. We talked with uh, Terry Dunlap from uh, Refirm Labs, and uh, in that one we were talking a little bit about some some cameras they discovered to have uh, have backdoors in the firmware and that kind of thing. Now, um, is, it, are you guys uh, competitors with with them? Or is it a complementary product? Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. No. The uh, Terry and that crew, uh, they're uh, really great team. Uh, we're not competitive. Um, what we're doing is we're kind of hooking into uh, platforms for an ongoing ongoing monitoring. Um, they're doing a lot of uh, really great uh, reverse engineering and uh, firmware analysis that is uh, this kind of outside the scope of where we're focused, but they're a great team. I know they developed the, uh, the tool Binwalk uh, that uh, allows you to uh, do some analysis on uh, on firmware. Very nice. All right. So uh, for, for those who have listened to this and said, 
Wow, I, I never even thought about my firmware. Uh, and they want to find out a little bit more. What, what's the best way for them to, uh, to find out more about Trapezoid? Sure. You can just go to uh, trapezoid.com, or you can uh, find us there, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Robert Ronceval, and I'd be happy to uh, chat with you. Sounds good. And if you're looking for the spelling of that name, we have it uh, in the description of this podcast. So don't worry, because it took me a second as well. Hey, uh, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And, uh, and hopefully we can talk again in the future. Hey, thank you so much, guys. Really glad to be here. All right. And thank you all for watching. But stay tuned because we have more Technado. It's coming up right after this. Are you a career changer or a budding tech pro who's looking to start their career in IT? I'm Wes Bryan, and along with my fellow IT Pro TV edutainer, Cherokee Boos, we've just shot a new show just for you. Each week, we'll dive into topics to help you launch your career in tech. Watch how to get started in IT on YouTube now. Just head to youtube.com forward slash IT Pro TV to watch and look for new episodes every Saturday at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. All right. Thank you to Robert for joining us. And uh, that was cool. I, I was, it's like we said, our second uh, company we talked to about firmware, and I didn't realize, honestly, that, that there was so much going on there, but, I mean, it makes sense. There's something that's hard-coded on, on your machine that, that you can't really change, so that yeah, could I mean, be a big area. If you're like a five-person dentist office or whatever, it's probably a little outside of what you need to worry about, sure. but if you're working for like a government agency with top-secret data, you absolutely need to be concerned about yeah, that. Yeah, you can't just assume that, that that new server you got, you can just slide it right in the rack and, and plug it in. Yeah. It's, and Especially if you're working for the U.S. government and you're running all computers made in China, <laughs> you know, which yeah. most of them Good are. Good luck yep. finding one here. <laughs> are Dells actually made in China? I think they're, I don't even think they're assembled. So there's a lot. The electronics assembled in Mexico. So much of the electronics. Because Dell stuff is made by Unisys, isn't it? Do they make their own stuff? I don't know. I get all confused. I don't know. I like how we just went. Whee! Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm confused. Let me look look at oh, but the, the point logistics. Is, the point is, you don't know. Even if it's an American company, right? Let me I mean, get it with their be, logistics director to see. Uh, well, how even that if it's made in. here, that you know, they might be buying a, a, a you know graphics card from X company, or it's intercepted during or transit. Intercepted. That's yeah. true. Looks like yeah, Dell has plants in Penang, Malaysia, sure. in Xiamen, China. Oh, there's a great coffee shop there. And, uh, yeah. Robert. So there you go. Love that place. All right, cool. Well, hey, before we let you guys go, uh, I want to let you know about a couple things coming up. First of all, uh, we've got some webinars uh, to get to. We just had one um, that, that we just filmed on MSPs and ransomware, but our next one coming up is on the post-compromise tools brought to you by the Target, Living Off the Land, and that's with Daniel and Don on Thursday, September 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And... Um, I know the whole marketing team. We were like, "What? What is this title? We got to come up with a catchier title." And then we realized those those words mean things. Yeah, and I, I, we didn't know that. Yep. What post, does that mean? Post compromise means you've hacked into a system. Okay. So now, what do you do once you're in? Uh, and then you've got like living off the land. That means you've got to establish persistence, but you can't install anything. If you install something, you're going to leave a footprint, right? So living off the land means you got to use tools that are already installed, the software that's already there to establish persistence and keep you know keep your, yourself in there so all of that's kind of a, a part of it these are, are typically like fileless hacks 
So the file system might be read-only, so you can't even write to the file system. Uh, there might be tools installed like antivirus that you have to bypass. There's a lot of different activities that go on, so it's all a part of that process. So this would be a webinar that you want to go to if you're a pen tester and and kind of or or, or, or interested in that or or you know or, even or you're trying to protect your it. Yeah. And, yeah, you're trying to protect against it. And Say hey, what tools do I already have like on they here have that someone here. could use against yeah. me if they got in? Yep. Right, right, and okay. it's it's like that. You ever see the movie The Equalizer? Mm-hmm. So you got to think if Denzel Washington walks into the room right now, what could he? What in this room could he kill me with? Yeah, I'd be and then you got to get rid of that. That's like, why I always make sure I pick up the axes and the guns right next to my door. Well, but from that movie, I think we all learned that a camera lens, a <laughs> ca- ashtray, like is a, well, those heavy glass ashtrays. Those are splitting <laughs> <laughs> off the land has nothing to do with uh, um, eating you know, like trees, camping, or or the bear grills, or anything like that. Uh, I mean, technically. Because not we were, here. We were saying we should. Oh, he, he he missed an opportunity to call this. We could say like living off the land, and we could do it. And then we're like, no, no, that actually means something. I looked it up, and it, yeah. it, it yeah. says something. Yep. Oh, I mean, he he wanted to do it like naked and afraid, mm-hmm. uh, where you know he wasn't wearing clothes and bugs were biting him through the whole yeah. thing. And well, and that'd he be ate some bad figs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, but if you want to check out that webinar or any of our past webinars, uh, <laughs> head over to itpro.tv slash webinars where you can find that uh, full list of upcoming uh, as well as on-demand webinars. You can go back and uh, learn all of those great things. Also, want to let, let you know about an offer from ITProTV at go.itpro.tv slash technado. Uh, we've got a 30% off coupon code there uh, for the lifetime of your account, so you can uh, get a seven-day free trial uh, sign up, check it out, then use that coupon code at checkout and have that price locked in um, for the lifetime there. We also uh, have some some information about business plans. You can uh, request a demo for your team and uh, learn all about the cool features we have for managing teams within IT Pro TV. That's over at go.itpro.tv slash technado. All right, gentlemen, uh, we survived with all the this new uh, fancy equipment, got all these Fancy wipes and things going on on the video side. Our survivability score has increased from 6.7 to 6.9. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I learned how to make a fire with only a rubber band. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, everyone. Uh, and we will be back next week for an all-new Technado right here. See you then.